Well, this morning we are confronted with the famous passage that outlines the festival of Passover. I have many faults as a preacher, one of which is I tend to go and uh, preach my homework. So it's one of these things that, uh, you know, when you go to divinity school, your seminary professors, one of the first things they say when they, t- when they teach you to preach is, I know it's tempting to bring up all those things that you learn in your biblical studies classes and theology classes, but frankly, most people don't want to hear them. <laughs> For some reason, this is a lesson that's taken a little while to sink in. Because when I first read this passage, I was like, this is a fantastic example of the pea source of the documentary hypothesis of Julius Wellhausen. <laughs> it's true, actually. <laughs> it also uh, shows some of the potential settings in life that have given rise to this festival. In all likelihood, you had a clearing out of leaven from the homes in the springtime. Uh, that would be for more agrarian people, combined with a festival of those herders who were moving their flocks from their uh, winter grazing grounds to their summer grazing grounds, which in Egypt and the Near East tended to be more arid and dry. So a sacrifice of a lamb for finding a good grazing ground uh, in the summertime. That, that's sort of the background to this. And then combined together with the exodus and gets mixed together to what we have today. Now, if you're a social justice person, you could look at this text and be grateful that uh, there is a command that if you cannot afford a lamb, that you are to get together with other people and share that lamb and share it equally. If you're a cook, you can have your heart warmed by the fact that they're telling you to roast a lamb and not boil it or eat it raw. Thank goodness. (laughs) I'm still looking for the Hebrew line that says, make sure you rub it down with rosemary and salt beforehand. (laughs) And put little cloves of garlic, you know, strategically placed in the meat. But actually for me, the, the, the thing that jumps out most about this passage is this obsessive ritual nature of it. There's this uh, very clearly delineated ritual that the people of Israel are supposed to go through. And so you read through this nice narrative and then interrupting this narrative is the outlines of the Passover festival. Now, I was raised a good congregationalist, and I'm someone who's uh, found connection to God through, say, reading scripture, prayer, through trying to put my faith into action. But one thing that I have not really found much of a connection to God with is through ritual. There's a reason why I'm not a Roman Catholic or an Episcopalian. I am a little bit suspect of ritual. So I I see this emphasis on ritual in Exodus 12, and I I think, maybe, am, am I missing something? So when I'm confused or uh, interested in exploring something more, I tend to reach for my bookshelf, take off a book, dust it off, and open up to page one. And this week, the book that caught my eye is a book by a longtime professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York called Tom Driver, and a book that he wrote called Liberating Rights. Driver claims that we actually are innately ritualistic as human beings. Human beings have a tendency to form rituals. And that rituals, in fact, are all around us, even though our society likes to be suspect of the ritual nature of things. When I was a little kid, my father would come, and every night before I went to bed, would come into my bedroom and tuck me in and wish me sweet dreams. Every single night. It wasn't just a routine, something that he did just out of habit. 
It was something that he sought out to do every single evening. Regardless of what mood he was in, regardless of what was going on in his life, he wanted to make sure that before we went to sleep, he had a chance to tell each of us as kids sweet dreams. Now, I already knew my father loved me. I knew that he wanted me to have sweet dreams, but he still insisted on going through the ritual of it. We have rituals when we say, when we have greetings uh, or we say goodbye to people. There's a certain ritual way we go about it, and it varies from culture to culture. I, uh, when I was in England and taught at Eton College, I was living uh, with, with, some other, with, with other teachers in this house, and we, uh, knowing that we were not very clean naturally as teachers, we had a housekeeper to help uh, straighten up the house. And this housekeeper was Portuguese, and she'd been in England for 20 years, and uh, I always cracked me up. I'd go, and I, when I first met her, it was very hard to understand what she said because she had this thick Portuguese accent. And I think that she couldn't understand me either because I had a thick American accent, and I tend to talk too fast because I'm from Boston. <laughs> so I would see her, and I would say, Sally, how are you? And she had no idea what I was saying. So she would just respond, yes. <clears throat> and this cracked me up. So every time I saw Sally, I was like, Sally, how are you? And she'd be like, Yes. And even after we became friends and, and, and got to be able to understand one another through our accents and cultural differences, still, every time I saw her, I would always say, Sally, how are you? And every time she would always respond, yes. And it warmed my heart. Rituals are important, these little rituals. If you, if, if you doubt that, um, just think about uh, bringing together different families and family rituals. When I give premarital counseling, I usually will ask people, what are the rituals of your family? Rituals usually come up during holiday times, most especially. could be Thanksgiving or Christmas. There are certain ways that you do things in a family that you've always done them that way. Uh, maybe it's around a different holiday like July 4th. Maybe it's about the fact that you've always shared dinner together as a family. Uh, it could be any number of things. But woe to those who neglect the importance of these rituals as it can create surprising amounts of disagreements when the rituals that you're used to get disrupted. Okay, so I got driver's point. Rituals are everywhere. Fine. Um, but he goes on to say that rituals are crucial for the construction of community. Rituals help create and form community. When I was in college, I had the great privilege uh, of being in a fraternity, what we called their final club. And uh, what, this final club had been established in 1791, so it had been around for more than 200 years. And one thing that struck me was how many rituals we had in that place. There were rituals that existed before you joined the club. And then there was these elaborate rituals of initiation. There were rituals for every transition during your time in school. Uh, there were rituals that structured our meals. There were rituals that structured our everyday interactions. There were even particular rituals around, you know, when we played a pool around the pool table, there was a certain way that we had to play pool. And there's a certain way, there's a little squash court in back. There's a very particular way to play squash in the back. I was a very bad squash player. But there were rituals that structured everything. Now, according to Driver, what rituals do is they create what he called a liminal space. That is to say, they create a new space that people enter into. That the ritual world can be a world that's almost a magical world when you enter into it. And that when you're in that space, you actually can leave behind some of the things and some of the baggage that, you would, no that would normally govern your interactions with other people. 
So rituals have a, have a way of being able to recreate your conception of community. So in this club, for instance, I could see someone who graduated uh, from Harvard 40 years before, and yet they'd walk into the place and we all shared the exact same rituals, even though I had not met that person before. It created an immediate sense of community, even though we came from very different life stories and life backgrounds. Same thing within the club. Uh, Harvard as an institution has changed dramatically over time, and so is the uh, makeup of these different clubs. And one thing that was remarkable is that when the people bought into the rituals, regardless of what background they came from, they all were joined together. The people who had the hardest time uh, being into the community of the club were those who were the most reluctant to embrace the rituals. Rituals also, of course, help us with memory. Help us with remembering things. I mentioned in my sermon last Sunday that, uh, you know, the, especially in the wake of the storm, there are places of holy ground here in Houston where God's presence has shown up as we have reached out and helped out one another. But that we have a tendency to forget those things, and it's important to tell those stories so that people know that we are, in fact, on holy ground. The same thing is true with major events in our communities. It's so easy to forget them unless we find some way to remember them. And there's no better way to remember them than with rituals. Driver brings up in his book the particular example of warfare. How dangerous is it when people forget how bad warfare actually is? Certain communities do a good job of ritualizing that, of remembering it in a particular way, so that people even who weren't present for that war can know how bad it actually was and can work hard to avoid them. How big a risk is it when we neglect those important rituals of memory. But Driver's main point, not just about memory or community, but the power of rituals to transform. We are who we are because we act in a certain way. The more we act in that way, the more we become that way. And rituals are, a, uh, are an inaction of particular rites, particular ways of doing things. When I was in divinity school, one of my friends was uh, big into the Anglo-Catholic movement. Now, if you want to know something that I couldn't be further from, it's an Anglo-Catholic. Uh, this is, uh, again, this is, this is a group, uh, it's a movement that grew up in the 1830s and 40s in England, uh, often known as the Oxford Movement or Tractarian Movement. And this is a movement that uh, was the most over-the-top Catholic in terms of its ritual that you can imagine. The most overly elaborate uh, neo-Gothic spaces were built. Uh, there's incense everywhere. If you ever walk into an Anglo-Catholic church, uh, you can't help but be knocked over by the smell of incense. Uh, there's the most elaborate communion rituals and genuflecting and bells ringing and processions and, and the type of vestments you didn't even know existed anymore. They would dig out and find. And I was so skeptical of all of this ritual. And I remember my friend pointed out to me, he said, John, when, when did this movement arise? He said it arose during the Industrial Revolution in England, and it arose because it was an attempt by theologians to wrestle with the brutality and the dehumanization of the Industrial Revolution. That by giving people an opportunity to be embraced by, ritual, by a ritual that is transcendent allowed people to get beyond a life on a factory floor or the life in a slum somewhere in, somewhere in London and to be able to experience it only for a moment a world that was something other, that was holy, that was of God. Think of a rituals in different cultures. I'm reminded of like a Japanese tea ceremony. 
how everything is so ordered and done in a particular way. Imagine if you grow up in a culture where your rituals are that ordered. How does that affect the way you see the world and interact with other people? Here at FCC, we have our own rituals that go back to, uh, go back to the Protestant Reformation. You think of the space here in this meeting house and what that says to us. You think of the way we do worship. The Reformed tradition has often been called God's frozen chosen. Because, again, there's a reason for this. Our rituals are not particularly ecstatic or emotional because of a deep distrust of where our emotions can lead us. That, in fact, in our tradition, in our rituals, they've always been more intellectual, more thought-based, because that's the way the tradition has thought about and conceived of God. How does that structure the way that we worship God and that, that we function as human beings? Now, rituals, while transformative, uh, are also morally neutral. They can be powerful, but they can also be used for bad purposes. Just look at Nazi Germany. If there's one thing that the Nazis were very good at, the Nazis were superb at seeing and realizing the power of ritual to transform. You look at those old propaganda films or other videos of a Nazi rally, Everything was planned out to its smallest detail for a particular purpose. Everyone in a very clear lines, uh, people in uniforms, people acting in unison, banners that display particular things, the, even the spaces of where these rallies were held, the way that the uh, oratory and other things were structured, all was with a particular purpose. Think about a ritual of book burning. Think about that. Imagine what it would be like to take a book and throw it onto a, onto a big burning fire, especially since you're throwing that book into the fire because it was written by a Jewish author. Imagine enacting that ritual again and again. What does it do to transform the way you see the world? Rituals can be deeply powerful and transformative. And that brings me to the ritual we see in our passage for this morning. This is a ritual enactment of God's liberation of the people of Israel. No matter where Jews have gone, they have celebrated this Passover ritual for one week. For one week, you're eating nothing but unleavened bread. You're celebrating your Passover Seder and you're remembering those bitter herbs because they are meant to design, they're a ritual reenactment of the bitterness that the people of Israel experienced under the bonds of slavery and in the Exodus. And as you eat of that lamb, you're reminded of God's great, uh, of God's great generosity towards the people of Israel, that, that you, as a Jew, are, are one of the chosen people. And imagine that. One of the things that, that, that's most remarkable about Judaism uh, is how much persecution Judaism has faced over the last 2,000 years. In cultures across the globe, ghettoized, uh, persecuted, prevented from doing certain jobs, and in the most extreme circumstances, being objects of violence and even genocide. And yet through it all, they have this ritual of the Passover. And every time that it's celebrated, that reminder that you are God's chosen people, God's purpose for you is one of liberation. Freedom. You are special. I wonder what we can do better here in First Congregational Church to embody what we would like in terms of transformation in our rituals. It's one thing that, again, I haven't thought much about this before this week, but this week I've been thinking about it constantly. What can we do to make our rituals more effective? Not just here on Sunday morning, 
but also outside of Sunday morning? What about, what about having rituals around the way in which we, say, for instance, go to a protest? You go to a protest rally, and there are all sorts of rituals that are there. What sort of rituals can we design that can help remind us of the importance of standing up and making our voices heard on behalf of the voiceless? How can we make our rituals in our small groups or in your own family units, whatever they may be? As I've studied this text and read through Tom Driver's book, a veil has been lifted in terms of the importance of ritual, uh, and I look forward to taking it more seriously in my own life. And I encourage you to do the same in yours.